Hi, and welcome to the Fourth U Dimension podcast. This podcast is a production of the Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York. We release two podcasts a month dealing with whatever the topic is that we have decided as our adult education theme. For this month, we're talking about confronting white supremacy, organizing against white supremacy, and specifically thinking about the proposed eighth principle in the Unitarian Universalist Association. I'm excited that in today's podcast, I get to sit down with some members of our community who are involved in working towards racial justice. And I think that this is going to be a really exciting conversation for you to all listen to. And I hope that you stick around and enjoy this podcast. So welcome everybody to the 4th U Dimension podcast. As I mentioned in our intro today, we're really excited to get to sit down with folks who have been working on racial justice issues in our own community here at 4th Universalist. So I'm joined both by members of our racial justice team, but also folks who are just doing this work uh, in our wider community. Uh, And I'm really excited to get to sit down with them and share uh, their journeys in this podcast with you. Uh, And so if each of you would like to introduce yourselves, because we do have four guests on today. So let's go ahead and uh, take turns. Let's go to Carol first. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what brought you to this racial justice work? Sure. I'm... um... I'm one of the core members of the racial justice team and I'm new to fourth U. I actually joined in August, uh, but I am, I've been a Unitarian Universalist uh, for six years. Uh, when I retired, uh, I discovered that this was uh, something uh, that I could do. Uh, and very quickly uh, I became involved with uh, social justice and that, that kind of gave me a whole new purpose uh, in life. And when I got involved with social justice, you know, then very quickly I found out that really uh, racial justice is really kind of the key issue to all the uh, injustices going on. Thanks, Carol. Erin, uh, how about you introduce yourself next? Sure. Thanks, Ember. I'm Erin Bigelow, and uh, I have been a member of Fourth U uh, for just over 11 years, I believe. And um, it might be 12, I really don't remember exactly, (laughs) but uh, I have uh, been heavily involved in lots of areas at 4th U, including the board, but very specifically with 4th U artivists from day one. And um, also on the racial justice team that has been a racial justice task force in the past, and it's been uh, a justice team in the past. It's been all parts of uh, many pieces uh, through the years at 4th U. Um, what brought me into specifically more racial justice work uh, is more pointedly, I've, I feel like we've been focusing on it in 4th uh, U artivist uh, productions that we do, very specifically to broaden our group and and have true intentionality around the people we invite in you know we don't do we do open cast calls but really it's about the people we know and we had to be very intentional about bringing in um, a truly diverse cast in order to also expand to a truly diverse audience Um, and that's something we've been doing for many years now Uh, so I couldn't tell you exactly when it started but it was purposeful for sure thanks Erin Deb yeah. Um, so Deb Roth, um, 
I have been a member at 4th U for almost 30 years, which blows me a bit away. Um, joined in December of 92. And I can tell you exactly when it was because it was a real pivotal point in my life. And, and Fourth Universalist was a, a big part of that for many reasons. Um, I've led the women's circles there for years, um, founded, uh, co-founded with, with another member who's not really with us so often. Uh, the, the, at that point, it was Fourth UV Day, now Fourth U Artivist um, back in 2009, so 12 years ago. Um, and which I've, you know, always considered. And, and one of our associate ministers, when we first started doing it, um, talked about Fourth U, now Fourth U Artivist being um, a ministry of the church. And so it's always felt to me like it was part of our social, our, our broader social justice work. And then as, as Aaron said, um, and, and I have to say, she, she very specifically spearheaded are, are the opening up, the, the very distinct opening up of how we were reaching out to people to make our cast even more diverse than it, than it was sort of accidentally, um, not so accidentally. She, she, she is our creative director has, has reached out in big ways to, to make that happen, especially in the last, you know, over the last year. Um, and for me personally, the, the work moving into racial justice work, not, you know, under the bigger umbrella of, of social justice work um, has been a very personal one. And, and somewhere around um, the, the murder of George Floyd, um, I read White Fragility and that just turned my world upside down. And I, and, you know, I could feel embarrassed for being naive. <laughs> Um, and I was certainly one of those people who, who said for, for years, oh, you know, I don't, I, white supremacy I, couldn't, couldn't be me. I mean, my parents started the first biracial council in, in the 60s uh, growing up in our, in our town in upstate New York. And, you know, oh, no. So it's been a personal education for me. And I've been really grateful to, to be more involved, not as much as I'd love to be. My, my bandwidth <laughs> doesn't allow for me to, to be as, as, intimately involved with, with the racial justice team as I am with the artivists, but I'm just so grateful for Eileen and Carol and, and the education I continue to get there. And turning to Eileen for our last introduction. Uh, hi, I'm Eileen Jarrett and um, I co-lead Fourth U's justice team and I'm one of the leaders of the racial justice um, team. I have been a UU for 27 years but I've only been at Fourth U for the past two to three years. Um, and what brought me into this work was um, quite frankly, after um, Trayvon Martin was murdered, um, I was living in New Jersey at the time and I attended a UU congregation there. And after he was murdered, I just, I don't know, I just felt like had to do something and a racial justice um, team was forming very quickly at our congregation. So I joined that. And much of our work while I was there was focused on education, educating ourselves, educating the congregation. And then when I came to Fourth U, um, I joined the justice team and there were opportunities to do more beyond just education, um, which we can talk a little bit about. That's actually a great segue into the next question, which was, could you tell us a little bit about both the racial justice team, but also about just wider racial justice work that's, that has been going on, is going on and will be going on in the congregation? Um, yeah, I'd love to, um, to start with that. So back in the fall of 2019, um, a few of us were working on a closed Rikers campaign, um, and I got to know some of our, our um, 
other congregants um, very well during that. And we, we segued that into um, providing welcome kits to, for a local refugee shelter. Um, and there were a fairly small number of people involved in those efforts. But right before the pandemic hit, we showed a film after services called Suppressed, The Fight to Vote. And this film really opened up people's eyes regarding the amount of suppression that takes place in our country. And I remember watching the film and thinking at the end, this is the United States of America. I, I just couldn't believe it. And I started sharing it with my family and my friends. And we followed up the film with a call to action, specifically partnering with Reclaim Our Vote, a nonpartisan organization, which works to ensure people of color who may have been removed from the voter rolls, um, check their registration and re-registered if necessary. And uh, so we held a couple of postcard parties and then the pandemic hit, um, but we quickly figured out how to continue the momentum that had started. And there were so many people that wanted to be a part of this. And we joined with Ethical Society of New York and St. Bart's, and we developed a huge operation. Um, the, when our, the other racial justice um, leaders, Brian Kramer, who was also co-leads the justice team, he was very directly involved in handling addresses like across the country, not just, just for Fourth U and not just for the local New York City efforts. And in all, we wrote 165,000 postcards prior to the presidential election. We also ran phone banking. And then right before the Georgia Senate runoff, we sent out another 60,000. Um, we couldn't have done that without forming partnerships with other organizations. And we're really grateful for all of that. And then this summer we held, held a vigil um, uh, past summer for after the murder of George Floyd. Um, and of course, Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery were also at the front of our minds and efforts. Carol, do you wanna talk a little bit about the vigil, what that was like? Yeah, I, I, you know, started right before the vigil. In fact, Reverend Schuyler invited me to the racial justice meeting where you were planning this vigil. And uh, it was really uh, powerful. Um, you know, for me, I need to feel things for to kind of really uh, register with me. So there was this part of the vigil where we uh, laid down on the cement, uh, like George Floyd did for more than uh, eight minutes. Um, and I happened to tell you there's some kind of steam pipes under the cement. So the, the, the cement was literally burning hot. And, you know, I laid on the cement and all I could think was I'm going to get up after the, you know, the eight to nine minutes, I'm going to get up. He did not get up. And it just was a very powerful, you know, to experience that. Um, so it, it, it really was uh, a, a really good event. Yes, so we had um, a wonderful turnout for that as well. So, so many more people um, showed up than we had anticipated and people stopped, you know, whatever they were doing as they were passing um, our congregation. Um, so that was, as Carol said, a very, very moving experience. And after that time, we did like uh, pen a letter to the city council and the mayor in support of reallocating resources. We also uh, made phone calls in our advocacy work to get the walking while trans ban repealed, which was just repealed in New York state um, this month, which was wonderful. Um, and then recently we joined our racial justice team with Ethical Society, and that's already proving to be an invaluable partnership. We're currently working on Invest in Our New York, which is also known as Budget Justice. Um, we are seeking to raise revenue so that programs aren't cut. And this is truly racial justice work um, because it's the marginalized communities that are disproportionately affected um, by the fact that we think, you know, millionaires, billionaires are not possibly, you know, paying as much as they could or should. 
Um, and in the future, it's likely we'll continue with Reclaim Our Vote and of course education and advocacy work. But we're also hoping to partner with another um, organization that's led by people of color to find out how best we can best support their work and their projects. I mean, so it sounds like we're just doing a lot of really great things as a congregation, lots of places for folks to plug in. Uh, we will have contact information in the show description if folks want to get in contact uh, with our racial justice team and get plugged into some of those efforts going on in the congregation. Having talked a little bit about you know, what we've been doing uh, as a whole community, I'd be curious individually, what has this journey of confronting white supremacy in your life meant for you personally? We kind of touched on this and what brought you into the work, but how has this journey been for you personally? I know, uh, you know, often folks can point to a specific incident. I know for me that uh, Tamir Rice was, was the one that really like always will stand out in my mind. You have these moments that do catalyze you like that, but what has the overall journey been like for you? I... Well, I started, I, as you said, Amber, I started a little bit to, to express that um, when I introduced myself. Um, it's, it's interesting because I had, had a Facebook uh, back and forth with, um, with our wonderful member who's, who's now uh, out in Las Vegas, um, Lisa Stifler a couple years ago about something. And back then is when she, you know, and when I was really not terribly woke and I have a long way to go. Um, and she recommended white supremacy or white fragility back then. Um, and, and since then, you know, that's, it's been little trickles for me. And for me, the catalyst um, was George Floyd um, in ways that I wouldn't, um, and, 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 and in, um, in venues that I wouldn't have, ex have expected. So I feel like at this point, my awareness of my privilege and, and how I'm learning about how white supremacy works in my life is infused in so many different parts of my life. Certainly, um, Fourth You being the, the catalyst in many ways, as it has been for many things in my life, but even um, my, I sing in a woman's chorus um, called the So Harmoniums, and we we've had several conversations. We had a DEI training for the whole chorus um, about a month ago with a terrific woman uh, and looked at ways that we can address our, um, our, how, how we put ourselves out there as a chorus and how we can um, very consciously, kind of what we've been doing with, with, with Fourth View Artivists, um, make the chorus more diverse. And one of the things that we're doing in the educational side of that, in addition to the DEI training, which we'll do several more of those, is that we have two, we have two book clubs, two anti-racism book clubs that I've, through them, and I, I love to read and don't have much time to do it, but we've read some wonderful books through there. I, I read for the first time a couple um, James Baldwin books that um, I certainly knew who he was and, and saw the, you know, the wonderful documentary this summer. And um, and now we're, we've started CAST. So that, that gave me the, the impetus as huge as it is. Um, and then reading, literally, I have two must reads um, in, in my morning. I don't read anything every day. <laughs> I mean, I don't get, I think we're also overwhelmed with emails, but the two things that I now read every day are Heather Cox Richardson's uh, Letters from an American and Anti-Racism Daily, which I think it was you, Aaron. I could be wrong. I think it was you that had turned me on to that. And yeah, and so I feel like it's now just part of my being and, and I will never know enough. 
you know, uh, there's just so much that I don't know that I don't know. Um, but I'm doing as much, I feel like for the first time, I feel like, like my eyes are open about things that, that I was kind of smug about before. And that's, that's not easy to say. Um, but that's, that's my truth. So, um, as you know, a, a lot of course over time has been changing for a lot of people, um, to be honest, and I think I judge myself for this too, to be honest, the true intentional work that I've really done, like the daily work, like the deep dive, really didn't happen until after George Floyd was murdered. And it became this thing that it felt like, what, everybody, yes, of course I'm doing this. And um, there was a lot of like, what was I not doing before? I was not seeing this before. I was not seeing the opportunities. So the first thing I did was the um, 28 day challenge, Layla Saad's book, Me and White Supremacy, which was, let's call it a deep dive. It felt like uh, 12 step recovery work every day. It was deep journaling. It was deep looking into past um, beliefs and how they currently exist in my psyche as current beliefs, you know? I'm not on the other side. Nobody is on the other side of racism in this country um, or any country really. And so uh, getting honest with myself was really the first step about understanding the work that had to be done. And I've of course done periphery work. I've of course, you know, looked at where we can extend, you know, all kind of uh, work around um, ableism and and white supremacy, but not really recognizing it truly as white supremacy, understanding it as racism that exists, but not understanding the undercurrent of how racism truly exists in every breath I take in this country, right? And um, so that work uh, was the catalyst really for starting an anti-racist book club that I have with uh, some really close and trusted friends. And we kind of, you know, feed each other anti-racist work to do on top of the books that we read. Um, so we've also read the book that uh, Fourth You did with DJ and Sean. They did um, Gioma Oluo's book, uh, So You Want to Talk About Race. And we did that book. And I also was able to take some pieces of that book for our last Artivist show. Um, and we did we read cast uh, and now we're reading um, the, oh, what is it called? I'm sorry. <laughs> I now forget the name of the word of it. Um, it it's a novel. It's, it's uh, Britt Bennett, Brent, Britt Bennett's novel. And, um, and really just uh, looking deeply, meeting regularly with these people and having regular like long text thread conversations about this work and talking with my partner who has experienced racism throughout his life and um, especially in this country and you know really just getting myself more aware and my relationships with even co-workers have changed um, through this through this work and my humility around uh, recognizing the work I have to do and then working with people like my parents and people uh, in my family directly who may happen to be Trump supporters or, you know, just 
really not not seeing what they don't see, um, or even when they're told not being willing to look at it. Um, and that process of accepting people where they are, um, knowing I can't change personalities, and yet I can't give up either. And so what that finding that balance has been really a big part of this process for me too, um, which included some social media rants in a lot of ways and arguments and then stepping away and coming back and all of that back and forth of the process of what that looks like for many of us. Very interested in this uh, me and white supremacy uh, workbook that you did. I actually did look it up online. Uh, Eileen mentioned it to me and it looks like it's a very powerful uh, experience. Um, I had a couple of experiences that really um, had a big impact on me. Uh, one was a training with faith and action where I was away for a few days um, with the majority people of, of color. Uh, but we spent an entire day talking about racism, but we started out with this, if you're familiar with this cross the line exercise, uh, which I uh, was done by people who were very experienced and trained. And we spent the next 10 hours talking about racism. It's not something to be done lightly or casually by anybody. Um, so that something happened that I just felt something during that exercise uh, that I had not felt before about my white privilege. Uh, and then I had another experience. I went to General Assembly in 2017. First time I went to General Assembly and uh, probably one of the most explosive General Assemblies ever did the whole thing was about how there was, uh, you know, racism and hiring practices in the UUA. And it just, I mean, it was very, very tumultuous and very exciting. Uh, but one of the <laughs> speakers they had was uh, Robin D'Angelo, the author of uh, White Fragility. And, and Deb Roth uh, mentioned that. Uh, and she had three workshops for three hours. And I sat there for three hours and listened to Robin D'Angelo and something happened while she was speaking uh, that I finally kind of got it. Um, I had had an experience at my, uh, my job years ago where uh, this uh, black woman therapy aide had, uh, had me on charge, affirmative uh, action charges uh, because I had said you know, move, let's all move to the back of the room like we're moving to the back of the bus. And she apparently took offense with that. And at that time, all I felt was about myself. I was angry. I was humiliated. I was like, how dare she think I'm racist? She doesn't know me. You know, the whole, I have black friends, the whole nine yards. And that's where I went with that. And all of a sudden I got it that it wasn't about my intention. It was about the impact and how Robin D'Angelo explained that, you know, I wasn't a bad person. I didn't mean to harm her, but at no point was I ever able to really uh, understand how this woman felt. It was all about me. Uh, and it was just <laughs> kind of shocking to me. Uh, and I think once I had that shift, I started, you, you know, I kind of see racism everywhere. People say that's a stereotype, but it's, it's true. I, I see things differently now. And, you know, I don't think I'm a 
uh, a bad person. I grew up uh, how I grew up. We all internalized racism, but I feel better that at least I'm aware of it and I could do something about it. And I think that motivates me to do racial justice work. Yes, that that point about systemic racism and when do we all like learn about that, right? (laughs) Because I think, so I'm 58 years old, um, born in 62, right? So I was a child through the civil rights movement, but didn't really know anything about it or get it. And my husband and I both grew up in a, a town, in a city, it's a town, we lived in the town, but we went to school in the city of Newburgh. Um, some of you may know that name, Newburgh, New York. And there were race riots every fall, um, you know, and I, I don't know what they were about, <laughs> you know? And it wasn't until I did the um, racial justice workshop at Fourth U with um, Sean, our music director and our former DRE DJ, that I remembered all about that and thought, what, what, what was that all about? You know? <laughs> and I actually Googled and tried to, to find out um, because I think growing up, we just kind of thought like, oh, the black kids are making trouble, right? And, and, and it wasn't discussed really in our, in our household. Um, so in thinking about this um, question about our journey, it dawned on me, and I haven't thought about this in a long time. I'd like to think that my journey started when our daughter was born. My husband and I are white, but the first doll we bought her, the first baby doll we bought her was a black baby doll. And I remember my mom saying, why, why would you do that? <laughs> and I don't think I shared with her, but to my husband and I, we could share with each other because we don't want her to grow up racist like we did. And we thought, but here we were living in a town that we specifically chose, not because there weren't black people in a town to raise our family, but because like so many people, we were just looking for a good fit for us, close to work, you know, good schools, all those things. And yet it was a town where there were no black people. Um, We lived, our congregation was very close to um, Patterson, New Jersey. And so we, I did a lot of volunteer work there and everything, but this idea of systemic racism, again, I really didn't think about it until Trayvon Martin's murder and started doing so much reading between the world and me, all the books that everyone has mentioned already um, today. Waking Up White was another by Debbie Irving is another just fabulous. Um, but I want to also touch upon what Aaron said about family. Like what has this meant on his personal journey? I also, I was born and raised Republican <laughs> and, <laughs> And um, so it has been incredibly difficult and ruffling a lot of feathers so that when I first started doing reading and I would share like snippets of what I was reading, historical, not even like opinion, but hey, did you know like <laughs> this and that? I, I, it was not well received. Um, and that has probably been the biggest personal struggle for me. And here I'm a white privileged person. So I'm like, oh, what, what is that? Like nothing in comparison, I feel like to all of the struggles and the, um, the other adversity that right, people of color face. Um, so that's, that's sort of where I'm at now. That, that piece is continuing, it will continue on and on and on. And certainly self-education as well is, is just so important. I, I mean, I hear my story uh, reflected in some of your stories, so many of the same books, uh, especially when, when Baldwin was mentioned, I know I was a big fan of uh, Fire Next Time. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, I, I, I was also raised Republican. Uh, regular listeners may know that I uh, was also raised very conservative evangelical Republican. So that extra, extra special uh, brand of Republican 
Uh, and, you know, we definitely were raised with this, oh, racism is done with, like, you know, why are there only three people of color in our entire Christian school? Like, eh, it just kind of happens because of where we live, you know. Uh, but coincidentally, where we lived was Kenosha, Wisconsin, which managed to make the news this last summer. And it was a really interesting journey um, having to more directly confront and ha- handle the fallout with, uh, with family as uh, I, I have also had many of the social media rants as well. Uh, you know, sometimes I do, the social media rants did sometimes make me feel hopeful because many of the people that maybe five or six years ago, I spent a good time arguing with, debating with, um, this last summer were suddenly people that were saying, oh yeah, of course I believe that Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, so I'm like, okay, maybe all of this arguing was for something. Uh, and especially in religious communities, beginning to confront that. So uh, switching gears to think about, you know, Fourth Universalist as a, as a religious community, why do you think that it's important for us to do this work specifically in like these religious settings, to be really proactive in confronting white supremacy? And maybe what does that look like to be proactive about confronting white supremacy in a religious setting? I'm happy to start us off there. I feel like uh, religious settings are where people feel, um, receive guidance about how to live morally appropriately um, and ethically uh, and what is right. I think a lot of people find they, by being with their religious community, they identify what is right based on what is accepted in that community and what is offered to them. You know, so many religious communities like our own have sermons associated every Sunday or every, you know, once a week. And um, and in that way, you're kind of given this guidance about belief, a belief that we're encouraged to create on our own, but also with support in one direction. And so there's um, a humility, but also there is a vulnerability required, I think, to allow oneself to be a part of a religious community and um, and accept that guidance. Also the support of, you know, religious communities are where people find the some of the most support in their life, you know, even if within their families or without side of their families, people find religious communities to be an extension of their own family. And so um, the belief within that religious community and the guidance of the leadership of that community, I think can really, um, maybe not sway, but but maybe more just uh, morally guide the the members of that community. So it's why it's so important to um, encourage people to challenge people to recognize a truth that they might not be willing to. It takes so much work. It's so uncomfortable. And now I don't get to live without this information, right? I, I no longer get to be blind to the fact that this is my privilege every day. And um, when I'm reminded by my, specifically my religious community, um, I get uh, kind of, it it reinforms and uh, it's a catalyst yet again, every time, every week, at least for me to, to remember, to do the work, to recognize my privilege and then do something about it. You know, I don't, I don't get to just sit on my butt and be white anymore. I have to do something about it. Um, And so that that's because of my, my religious community. And I would say the more that can be done in other communities, the better for sure. Well, and it's Deb, I would, I would 
add to that, that there's, I think we're incumbent, <laughs> the entire UU denomination, which is primarily white. Um, yes, we're, you know, we're, we're associated with being the social justice, uh, you know, religion. Um, not that there aren't those in other ones, but we, we, it would be very easy for us to, to be in that, in that same little place, like what you were describing, Ember. Well, gee, you know, we, we're just not in a place where we, we're not offering the X, Y, Z that, that the black community wants. And that's, I, it's, which makes it, it's kind of a catch 22. It makes it very easy. It could make us if we weren't socially justice and racial justice uh, related to sit back and just be white, you know, as Aaron said, just, just stay in our whiteness. But at the same time, I, I think it's even more important because of our, who we are as a denomination, the, the, how, uh, how colorless we are as a denomination, um, even more important for us if we're going to really, um, you know, live our values, our UU values. Yeah, hi, it's Carol. Um, I agree with what everyone has said. Uh, I also feel kind of um, mandated by our, our principles, uh, especially the, the first, the second, and the sixth. Um, uh, but I feel that those principles, as good as they are, uh, have not been enough to really uh, make changes within our congregations, within our UUA uh, to uh, overcome white supremacy. So I'm uh, making a plug for, I happen to be for a long time, a big um, advocate for the eighth principle, which specifically addresses uh, racism. And uh, I, I, I do think it's, it's needed and important to be very specific in our message to fellow UUs that this is something we are uh, compelled to do. And silence is complicity. I have read over and over uh, that silence is complicity, so. To add on a little bit to that silence, I was just thinking that um, for me, like we, we, we said a lot about UUs here, you know, but like, if you look at the larger, just all religious communities, why it's important for all religious communities to be proactive. and I much of it I think does reside in that it's not enough anymore simply to be not racist, right? Oh, I'm not racist, not enough. <laughs> we really have to be anti-racist, right? Um, probably a lot of you have read how to be an anti-racist. <laughs> um, because again, like being not racist, it's really, it is really being silent and not sharing that once you know, it's like what Aaron says, once you know the history and, um, you're like, wow, I didn't know that. I had no idea. You, once you know it, you can't not unknow it. <laughs> and so it, it is incumbent, I think, upon all of us. And like she said, the religious communities are often extensions and it's a way to bring people into the, into the work, I think. So speaking of the work, uh, I'm curious for folks, whether maybe they're at this place that they, they, they think, okay, I'm not racist, but I, I really want to move to being more actively anti-racist. I want to actually confront how this racism, racism has infected my life, how whiteness has infected my life. You know, there's a lot of resources out there. I wonder if maybe you have advice, resources, tips for anybody that's maybe new to this journey, maybe a beginner on the journey. We'd love to, I'd love to hear what, what you might have to offer. 
I just want to go back to one thing because I, I you know, in my mind, uh, the the anti-racism work for a congregation kind of gets divided up first, first for people to do the internal uh, work, you know, through education, workshops, whatever, whatever helps them to identify, you know, their white privilege uh, and really understand it. I think that's a really necessary first step. And then I think as, as a congregation, we have to look at within our congregation, you know, what practices do we have that unintentionally uh, may reinforce uh, white supremacy and, and what can we uh, change uh, to try to overcome that. And then, and then I think you're more ready to do the external work of uh, anti-racism work in the, in the rest of the world and in, in multiple issues uh, in partnering with the grassroots organizations who should really be the ones that, that point us uh, in the direction of, of uh, where our assistance is needed. I agree that the the work for a newcomer to anti-racist work, of course, needs to start from within, but we can't spend too much time kind of navel gazing at, uh, oh, look at me, look at my privilege. Oh, I get it, I have privilege. Um, that we really have to keep moving, as we know. Um, so I, I had suggested that Me and White Supremacy Workbook in that it is condensed, it's intense, it's 28 days. When you do it, you do it. She actually calls calls out people who are just reading it, and she says, "If you're reading this book and you're not writing, then you're this is that's white privilege. That is, you know, that's white supremacy that you don't believe you have to actually do this work. That you just feel like you can read this work only and move on. And um, it's like it's that in your face kind of book. And there are plenty of books that are not in your face that are just information. Now I have the information and." Um, you know, but but the work of that book really not just lets you see your own privilege, but lets you see the reality of what you truly didn't realize you truly still believe in order to move beyond the, that belief and change your surroundings, you know, change your media consumption, be aware of, you know, who you're listening to and who you're holding up and who you're con uh, viewing as a leader in your life, you know, um, uh, it, that that work really helped me to change the 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 podcast I listen to and change the books I read and change the movies I watch and change the shows I'm interested in because you know and really helped me to see wow I was really whitewashing my environment my history that I was consuming and my present culture I was really whitewashing it just unintentionally it was just easy um, and so it takes a little bit of work, but only a little bit, right? To to have the willingness to to look a little deeply more deeply at this stuff. And then the next steps for me just seemed natural. It was like, okay, now what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do next? How am I gonna help? And um thankfully our our community, our fourth you community, you know, doesn't tell anybody to go figure it out on their own. Like we we have opportunities for people to support um you know, efforts that are being led by people of color by, and we as white people are stepping aside and taking direction um, and not just like deciding what needs to be built for people, instead raising the money for the people to decide what needs to be built for themselves, you know, and, and supporting in every way. 
I'd just like to add that, um, yes, beyond reading, right, th th those larger discussions with friends or family, or in the case of Fourth U, when we had the racial justice workshops, there was a lot of um, self-reflection, but then also there was action that came out of that, you know, and, and trying to figure out how we can influence and change things at Fourth U to move from a racist organization to an anti-racist organization. And so that work is going on and I'm hoping that we'll be able to um, offer some more um, anti-racism classes or doing the workbook together, White Supremacy and Me for, for white people on that end. Um, and we do have a POC affinity group, which is um, you know at our congregation as well. Yeah, th I think as Aaron said, there are there are opportunities and, but to try perhaps not to get overwhelmed because I know in the heat of the summer, there were so many resources flying around <laughs> and it was so hard to keep up, you know, and you would click on something and they'd say, here are 100 things you can do to combat racism. <laughs> and I'd be like, what? <laughs> like, you know, and it took me like how long to click on them and to read them because every time you clicked on it, it, it opened up a whole nother world. So sometimes, of course, when we're faced with so many choices, that leads to inaction and freezing. And then we don't do anything. We shrug our shoulders. We're like, I can't deal with it. So um, after you do some reading and you talk with some people, maybe try to find one thing, you know, whether it's joining, you know, our racial justice team one night or hopping on a call to action or attending a surge meeting, which is uh, showing up for racial justice, which is available. And that, that group is just for white people, for our listeners. But doing one thing, and that one thing is every day you're reading the, you know, the daily um, thing that Aaron and Deb talked about, you know, that's, that's okay. Like you, you can take baby steps. <laughs> yeah, I, I happen to have found it very um, exciting that after the George Floyd murder and, and all the, the Black Lives Matter protests, there was a huge amount of stuff going on in response, especially for, uh, well, for white people. And, um, you know, I went to a lot of uh, uh, webinars that were excellent. Uh, there was one uh, run by Faith in Action for uh, white faith leaders. Uh, the UUA uh, had a series. Um, you know, I, I, I also recommend following these groups like Surge and uh, the Movement for Black Lives. Uh, and it really, um, I don't, I guess I, I have a different, I didn't feel overwhelmed by it. I felt like I was, it was helping me. I, it, it felt healing in a way and, uh, and also, you know, motivating. Um, so I, I found that there's a lot, there've been lots of documentaries on, on PBS, uh, uh, reconstruction. Uh, they had just had the, the black church just finished last night for the first time on the, on the black Panthers. Um, so many, and the history, learning the history for me is very, uh, important. Um, I just learned something last week. There was a webinar by the Frontline is a coalition that includes the Movement for Black Lives and a couple of other groups. And they had this speaker uh, about the Wilmington coup. I didn't know anything about this. How, you know, and I land up saying to myself, how did you never know anything about this? Uh, and it, it just, um, it has really helped me to also learn the history of the United States and uh, a very not, not a proud history. <laughs>
Yeah, and I think once again, so many things that, that you each have said really resonate. Um, and a couple thoughts. I, I definitely, Eileen, have had that sense of overwhelm-induced inertia, <laughs> where there's just so many resource out there, resources out there, and where do you start? Um, and I also am I'm so grateful. I mean, big plug for for our anti-racism work at Fourth U. I have relayed many of those re resources, including. Um, the latest thing that you sent out, Eileen, um, with the, the panel discussion um, for, uh, with, uh, for CAST for next week. I've sent that to my anti-racism book club, you know, with my, with my women's chorus. You know, I've, I, I wish I had the bandwidth to do the reading and watch the, you know, I've seen a ton of, you know, really amazing things, especially over the summer. Um, that just really helped to educate with that, that historical perspective you're, you were talking about, Carol. Um, and when I can't, I've been, I've been a, uh, I don't know what the modern, what's the modern equivalent of a Rolodex? I, I've been the, the intermediary that connects different people to anti-racism work that I'm, that I'm getting tuned into thanks to Fourth U. And I just wanted to quickly mention, I was going to see if you were going to mention it, Deb, but as far as, you know, small actions to take every day, um, that newsletter that you can sign up for, um, antiracismdaily.com, it is free, but I would definitely uh, suggest at least a $5 a month donation just to remember that the people who are doing this work, specifically people of color who are doing this work for white people, that they be compensated. Um, but this newsletter every day always gives action items, like three easy, helpful action items. Um, and also like an easy wrap up at the bottom. If you can't read the whole thing, you know, you can just hit the highlights, but really, really helpful for people who are just looking for little things to do. They don't have to make it up. It's right there in front of you. And it's so comprehensive. You're right, Erin. That was the other point I was going to make. And then I forgot to say it um, about the, you know, the action steps. She starts with the action steps, but the other piece there, which broadens it beyond, um, well, it isn't, I mean, it's all anti-racism, whether, but we, we tend to think of anti-racism as being uh, for, against people of color. But one of the things that I've so appreciated and has been a, a deeper dive into that education for me has been all of the, the, the other um, communities, the other populations that have experienced uh, racism and have ex experienced prejudice, you know, from Japanese and just, it's, it's been extraordinary in its breadth of looking at all the ways that we, um, that we, that we don't see beyond our own experience. Just want to mention uh, one other resource, uh, Beloved Conversations, which is a workshop that the uh, UUA uh, runs. Um, and uh, I haven't done it, but they are starting uh, spring uh, semester in March. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's aimed at the UU, the vote uh, national uh, group. Uh, so this is the first time they're doing it on, on Zoom. Uh, and it, it looks quite interesting. It is, it, it is a time and, and money commitment, but I have heard uh, good things about it. 
well, it seems we have an abundance of resources. I'm going to make sure to get links from folks so that we can plug these in in the show notes uh, and so that all of you listeners can have a chance to follow up on these if there's something that you're interested in. Uh, I would definitely agree that, you know, it's never too late. You can get started on this work and get joined in and doing it. Uh, I want to say thank you to our wonderful guests for joining me for this podcast today. Uh, thank you for sharing your stories, your wisdom, your journeys. Uh, it's, it's been a real beautiful to get to share all together. We always appreciate all of our likes, subscribes, any of that on our stuff. It helps our content be more visible. So if you have a second to leave a like, it always helps. Thank you very much for tuning in.